you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You may not recognize the name of today's guest, but I think you're going to recognize some of the work that he's done. And I know by the end of the episode, you're going to love his heart and his story. Arthur Smith is known for his innovation and his audacity, and he's the man behind some of the longest running unscripted series in television history. His groundbreaking hit, you ready for it? Hell's Kitchen forged the modern food competition reality genre, while his Emmy-nominated American Ninja Warrior has spawned a cultural movement with ninja-inspired gyms in every major U.S. city. Today, Arthur's going to join us to share the adventures, the triumphs, the challenges, the hard-won lessons in his journey from a shy, introverted nine-year-old kid to one of the most successful television producers in history. My friends, this conversation is a reminder of just how far we can go when we work hard, take risk, serve the one in front of us, and reach for our dreams. So my friends, without further ado, you're going to love this episode with my buddy, and now yours. His name is Arthur Smith. Arthur, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. So great to be here. I'm honored to be here. Well, I feel like the honor is mine. And as our audience gets to know your story and the profound impact that you've had in media, they're going to be honored to hear your story as well. For those who may not know you, and maybe they missed the introduction I gave a moment ago, somehow they fast forwarded it through that to get to the good stuff. And you introduce yourself. How do you like to say, hey, my name is Arthur Smith, and this is who I am? What's your own introduction? (laughs) Well, my name is Arthur Smith, and I'm a TV holic <laughs> uh, because I've been a, a fan of TV. I grew up as a, the, the shyest of all kids. Uh, my parents were worried about me. There's something that I talk about in the book that changed my life when I was nine years old, and I was never the same. It was a time when I had to put myself out there. I was forced to put myself out there, and good came from it. When I was younger, television kept me company, and I, I really, really had this fast addiction to it. And now. It was before we had streaming and DVRs and ways to record it. So when the TV guide came in every week, for me, it was like triage because I had to figure out how to watch everything that I wanted to watch. And then through the years, I just became fascinated with it. And uh, through my love of sports and everything else like that, I, I ended up 
acting in movies and situation comedies. It's 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 a kind of a crazy story how the shy kid came out of a shell. Clearly, I'm not out of my shell today because I can't stop talking. And that led to my love of producing. And that, that's been my calling for the last 40 years. I've been producing and directing. Uh, my company, A. Smith & Co., we've done uh, 200 shows for 50 networks, and I've done 10,000 hours or so of sports programming through the years at Fox Sports, at CBC, CBC Sports. But ultimately, Arthur Smith, TV-holic, television producer, that's the story of my life, kind of. Well, we're going to get into a story even before you became a TV-holic, and then okay. a few of the stories since becoming a TV-holic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back all the way up to Montreal. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't speak French very well, but there are two characters who show up in your book and showed up obviously mightily in your life. And mm -hmm. you and I, before we began recording, began talking about my parents. And then we began talking about your parents. And we were blessed, man, to be raised by a mighty warrior. So I'm, I'm going to have you begin with your dad. Talk about Saul. Oh, man. Uh, I just got the chills even just bringing up his name. The greatest man I'll know, the greatest man I'll, I will ever know. And I aspire to be like him. Anytime I talk to my sisters back in Montreal and I'm on the phone and they say, Saul, as I start sounding like him, it's the greatest compliment. It's the greatest compliment. And my father is the most grateful man I know. John, just think about this. If I was going out with my father and we were going out to like a restaurant and we ordered a sandwich and we ordered the exact same sandwich, for some reason, John, his sandwich was better than mine. It's because he appreciated everything. Everything he did was the best and he was so happy and he really had this great attitude towards life. And I, I learned a lot of life lessons from him. And my father always said that there's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Mm. And there's never the right time to do the wrong thing. And he lived his life by it. And that was the biggest lesson I learned about doing the right thing. There was this code and I, I hope I picked up some of it. Um, but like you were saying about your parents, and, and, and I, I know something, obviously, about your story. It's a great story. But that I, I think it's much easier to reach when you're reaching from a strong foundation. Mm -hmm. And that foundation was my parents. I, I compare it. I use the analogy. If you're standing on a, a steady table of some kind, it's much easier to change the light bulb than if the table is wobbly, of course. Not all of us are blessed like us to have great parents. And that doesn't mean you can't reach... But it is easier to reach when you're reaching from a strong foundation. And sometimes you can build that foundation with other relationships, your friends, your siblings. And that's interesting. <laughs> he had this really funny way of getting people in a, engaged in a conversation to talk about what his son was doing. He was very proud. And so this, was, this is what he did. Whether it was a waiter or whether it was someone he met in a store, a, a complete stranger. <laughs> and he would go up to them. And he would say, do you watch television? Now, how many people say no? Everybody says yes to watch television. And as soon as they said that, that was his entree to say, oh, did you see the Summer Olympics? Or do you watch Hell's Kitchen? Or whatever I was doing at the time. And it was kind of genius, if you think about it, because he never got a negative answer to do you watch television? But he was such an amazing guy. And I'm so blessed because we passed away in, in 2017. He lived till 94. And he was there for a lot of my journey. Anytime I had a chance to bring him along with, I did. And even though I lived thousands away, I've been living in Los Angeles for 33 years, but I always stayed close to my parents. They were always coming here and I spoke to them multiple times a day. Although my mom and I had a special time. I spoke to my mom every day 
at 11 o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock Pacific time. And by the way, John, if I called her at 1055 Eastern, she'd say, you're not going to call me at 11. I go, Ma, it's five, five <laughs> minutes from now. Come on, you know, and, and, and if I called her at 1105, it was like, are you okay? Something happened to you. <laughs> but, but it was our time. It was our time. And life in LA around eight o'clock, you know, I could be at a movie, I could be at dinner, but I always, sometimes the call would be literally 10 seconds. Mom, okay, I'll call you back. Or sometimes I'd be in the middle of doing a live sporting event. And I, I'd have my production assistant, make sure you tell me when it's 11 o'clock. I'd literally be sitting in the truck and I'd be like, Roll back on that. Uh, I'll roll back on that shot. We're going to go to camera two in a second. Standby announces. Hi, Ma. Hi, Ma. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a live show. I'll call you back. Okay. So anyhow, but uh, a special connection. Both are amazing. And uh, as much as I enjoyed your book, I think the next one, when you write about your parents, might even be better because they really seem so worthy of being learned from and celebrated. So let's let's celebrate Goldie for a moment. Mm. She's, she's awesome, but dang, she's wild about her boy, man. Not only those phone calls, but everything you did in touch. It's funny. Many people who've read the book said it's a love letter to my parents. And it wasn't intended to be a love letter to my parents. It's just that they're so interwoven in my life. And even today, I think about them. But Goldie was special. She was golden um, and dominating. I mean, she was a strong woman. Um, I, I'd say if she had been born in another era, she would have been a CEO. She was so supportive. I call her my coach. She was my coach throughout my life. In the beginning, when something good used to happen to me, and I used to call her because she's, she'd be the first person I'd call, she would say something to me. And at first, I, I didn't like it. She said, there's more for you, Arthur. And every time she said that, I felt like, what, I'm not doing enough? I mean, when I was in my acting days, and I'd get a part in a, in a television show or something like that, and I'd say, and I'd say, Ma, I just got a part in a sitcom. And she'd go, there's more for you, Arthur. And I'd go, why are you saying that? And as time went on, I learned that the reason why she was saying that was she saw, she did see more for me. And mm. she, saw my, she saw me in more of what... Uh, of what I'm doing now in more of a leadership role and everything else like that. And John, I know you can relate because if parents make you feel special, you might actually believe it. And that's what my parents did for me. And they gave me the confidence to reach. But the crazy thing about Goldie, and I'll tell you one story, <laughs> this, this exemplifies who she, who she was and her support of me. I, I became head of CBC Sports when I was very young. I was 28 years old and I started to get a lot of attention in New York, in LA, and people were inquiring about me. And eventually, I ended up getting a phone call from Dick Clark, the icon, and he wanted to meet me. And I was interested in getting out of sports at that time. Uh, I'd spent my early part of my career in sports. I ended up going back to sports, but that's a whole other story. Um, so I flew down. To, I was I flew down to LA. But before I flew down, I I called my mom. I said I'm going to meet with Dick Clark. And oh, amazing, great. And, I, and she goes, you're going to leave sports? I go, I, I don't have a job. Ma. I'm just going to meet with him. So she goes, I'm coming. Now, I was living in Toronto at the time. She was living in Montreal. She says, I'm coming. I'm going to fly to Toronto. We're going to fly on the plane together. And I said, Mom, I'm, I'm okay. And, you know, here I was. Yes, I was young. I was 28 years old. But I was president of CBC Sports. I had run multiple Olympic delegations. I had a few hundred people working for me. And my mommy decided to come <laughs> with me. And you know what? It wasn't weird. It was good. It was really good for me. And maybe I did need it. And the day of the interview, I said to her, Ma, you're in LA. Enjoy the city. Go to Beverly Hills. Go to Santa Monica. 
enjoy it. I'm going to be gone for like two or three hours. You might as well enjoy it. And she goes, I can't have a good time. She's like, I can't have a good time with, with knowing that you're having such an important meeting. So she goes, just drop me off at a hotel nearby and I'll wait for you. I said, okay, there's a Universal Sheridan right near Dick Clark's office in Burbank. I drop her off at the hotel. And I said, well, have lunch, do something, go for a walk, you know, do something. So I go away. I'm gone for like two or three hours. I come back. She's sitting in the exact same spot in the lobby. She has not moved. And I said, mom, did you go anywhere? She goes, no, I've been sitting here holding my Jewish star. I've been <laughs> waiting for you. And that, that was her. That was her. Very devoted and special. And yeah, she drove me crazy, but in a good way. way. And, and my mom's uh, listening to your voice as you celebrate your mother. And so, mom, uh, we love you too, even if I don't call you every day at eight o'clock sharp. <laughs> uh, you, you roll out that story and in it, you whispered about some of the successes you would have later on. And yet you were a profoundly introverted, shy, self-conscious nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. You aren't anymore. What changed? Somehow, all the things that were happening to me, and I talk about that one moment when I was nine years old, um, playing sports, and I was put in a position, and, and it was a nice hockey game, and I was put in a position where I had no choice but to reach. And, and a good thing happened to me in this, in this particular sporting event. And somehow, when you're nine years old, you don't realize these things are happening to you. And subconsciously, it's telling you, maybe it's a good idea if you put yourself out there and take some chances. And through sports and playing sports, which I was pretty good at, I gained confidence. And the other thing that I realized is I actually enjoyed the spotlight. I actually enjoyed having the ball in the last minute. I actually enjoyed being up at at bat with two outs. And that was a lesson for me. And that meant putting myself out there more. And that led to acting in like school plays and started really slowly in school plays and camp plays, et cetera. And then um, we talk about reach moments. The book is a series of reaches and things that didn't go so well, because and we'll talk about that. I know John's going to bring some of them up. He warned me. Um, no, it's okay. It's good. We want to make sure Arthur's head remains very, very intact. Yes. No problem there. So uh, there was a movie being shot in Montreal, an American movie called Pinball Summer was being shot in Montreal. After doing all these plays and camp plays, I was reading this article in the paper about that they were looking for extras in this movie. And then people between the ages of 18 and 24 and come try out. And I go, you know what? I'll go try out. Why not? I'll be on a movie set. Kind of cool. Because I started to think that maybe acting was what I was meant to do or wanted to do. Anyhow, I went down there, stood in line. It was hot. I was in line for hours. And then one of the casting people was walking up and down the line, and they said, you, come over here. And I went, okay, just follow me. And I go, I don't know where I'm going, but they, ha they had a clipboard, so I figured they're important. I don't know. So I followed them into a room, and they said, eh, we want you to read for a part. And I read for a part, and they called me the next day and said, oh, we want to screen test you. And then I got, and then I got this part in the movie. It was kind of crazy because I had never auditioned for a movie or anything like that. And that's at the time, talk about head swelling. My head was starting to expand there because I had never. And then I got another movie and then I started getting television shows and everything else like that. But every time I was on set, the acting was fun, but I was more fascinated by what was going on behind the scenes. And so I was always talking to the director. I was on the television shows. I was always hopping into the control room. And I was so curious about how things were made. Yeah. And so when I went to university, 
I didn't want to go into theater arts, even though I still thought acting was probably the way I was going to go. I didn't want to go into theater arts because it was too artsy. I used to say, I don't want to be a tree. I don't want to be a method actor. I want to learn more about the business, which maybe will make me a better actor. But along the way, working on my own productions, my own student films, all this other stuff, it felt so right. And that's how I made the uh, transition. I don't even know if I answered your question. Once again, Arthur you completely said, dodged it. I, I, I figured completely... these hard-hitting questions you try to dance around. You've done a great job so far. You wrote a, a little bit about your grandfather, your yeah. father's father in the book. Yeah. yeah. You know, this guy who comes essentially from Ukraine type yeah. area with nothing into Canada, yeah. raises a little two-year-old boy. That's your dad. Yeah. And so your father and, and his his father begin this business together. I would imagine your father was a very sensible guy. Mm-hmm. And the idea that his son would go into theater and television, even on the business side, doesn't seem very practical at all. Was that a rub between you and your dad? It, it, it wasn't quite a rub, but it was. there was a lot of questions and there was a lot of concern, of course. But you talked about my grandfather who did come to Canada with nothing and he was having his own reach in his own life. And my dad was a very dutiful son and he was studying to be an accountant at McGill University. And, and that was what he wanted for his career. He ended up going into the Canadian Army during World War II, came out of the, came out of the Army. As a, he was a sergeant. And my grandfather had a partner in this little fur business that they had in Montreal. And his partner had left. And he asked my father to come into the business with him. And my father did not think twice. He said, I'm in. And he, he gave up his career. He gave up his accounting career. Years later, yeah. <laughs> when I'm about to head off to Ryerson, which was the school I was studying film and television, my father had come to me and my father was funny. I mean, he was really super funny. There wasn't a lot of serious talks with my dad. It just wasn't his jam. He was just funny most of the time. He did everything. He got through to us by being funny most of the time. But there was this time where he sat me down and I was, it was a couple of months before I was to head off to university. And I had just done those films before the the summer before. And he said to me, he goes, listen, I know you want to study this TV film thing, but you're going to graduate. And after you graduate, I want you to come into my business, which had grown. My father had built a really nice, substantial business. And he says, on day one, we're 50-50 partners. And similar to the conversation he had with his father decades before. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't say yes. There were tears in, our, in both of our eyes. And I felt terrible about it. I really, really did. But I just couldn't do it. And my dad said to me, listen, if... I understand if this TV thing doesn't work out, ever work out for you, there'll always be a place for you. And I couldn't love him anymore for saying that. And yeah, they didn't really get it because we had no connection really to the entertainment business. I didn't know anybody who worked in it. I didn't know anybody. So it didn't make any sense to them. But once I got going, they got it and it was was all good. It's all good. There's so many beautiful stories about your time in college and some of the wild things you did. By the way, professionally wild things you did. I think it's the journey from college into your first gig that that blew me away. And it kind of revealed this whole idea of reaching. So Dennis Harvey, who who is Dennis Harvey and why did you want to meet him? Mm. So Dennis Harvey was the head of CBC Sports in the early 80s. And what is CBC Sports? Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. CBC Sports, uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, sports department. And truthfully, especially at that time, because it was pre-TSN, ESPN, pre-cable and everything else like that, 
was the quintessential definitive premier sports organization in Canada by far. There was nobody even close who had the rights to everything, Olympic Games, and the highest rated show in Canada at the time, Hockey Night in Canada, which was like Monday Night Football times 10. There's nothing quite like Hockey Night in Canada. Hockey Night in Canada. I um, mean, Canada stops it every Saturday night to watch. Maybe not quite that much these days because there's so much sports on television, but certainly in those times when a national game would only be on once a week. Yeah. I decided as I got towards the end of my college life that I thought a good career move for me would be working at in sports and I wanted to work at CBC Sports. Now, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And for me, it was because I did not understand how the industry worked. I had no idea how the industry worked from like how you get a job or how you get into things. Um, but I knew I wanted in. And so in, in my last year, I, I went to the CBC offices and uh, basically stalked an executive, not Denny Harvey, because I, I couldn't quite get to Denny Harvey, but I stalked an executive. If I did this today or if somebody does, we prob I probably would have got arrested because I just hung out there all day and people were like, who are you? What are you doing? I'm just, uh, just getting a coffee. I was in the CBC sports lobby for five or six hours and I just hung out there hoping that at some point, this one executive by the name of Jim Thompson would walk out of his office, go to the bathroom, go to lunch, do something, and I can get him in the hallway and say, hey, I'm Arthur Smith, et cetera. So he, he was an alumni of my university, but 25 years ago. So we had that connection. So anyway, he comes out of his office, and I say, Jim, could just give me 10 minutes of your time. I, and I said, I'm Ryerson. I'm on scholarship. I've done this, this, whatever. And he said, I'll give you five minutes. I go in to meet with Jim and the meeting goes on for 90 minutes and it's a great meeting. And he says to me, so what do you want to do? And, and ignorance is bliss. I say to him, I want to be a producer. And he goes, well, that's a good life goal. And he goes, what do you want to do now? And I said, no, no, I'm ready to be a producer. Not, not smart, but I, but I said that. And then he said to me, he goes, well, let me tell you how it works. He goes, you have to work in local news. And then when you work in local news, as, yeah, as a PA, maybe you can get the national news as a PA, but then maybe you can become a segment producer, but not a real producer. And then maybe you can get over to sports, but maybe not network sports, and maybe local sports. And it was like a whole thing. And I go, how long does all this take? And he goes, fast track. You may get into sports five or six years from now. And I go, that's going to take too long. Also, not a very smart thing to say. So he said, listen, there was nice meeting you. I walked out of there and I said, oh, well, there it goes. I just blew that. A few weeks later, I get a call that Denny Harvey, <laughs> the head of CBC Sports, my first big mentor before Dick Clark, wants to meet with me. I was actually in Montreal. I literally turned the car around and drove all the way back to Toronto. It's a five-hour drive. But in the drive, I was thinking about how do I stand out in this meeting? What can I do? And I, I went back, and I'm going to sound like a really old person right now. I went back to my crappy Toronto apartment and sat down at the typewriter i sat down at a typewriter and then i went to the library to make photocopies man i sound like from another age anyhow i wrote all these ideas that i had on the typewriter and stuff like that and i was prepared to present ideas i convinced myself that a lot of people say they have good ideas but i was actually going to show them good ideas i was in the lobby and the receptionist says they're ready to meet you and i go they they and she goes yeah they're they and it's like okay so there was Denny Harvey and all these guys who were the executive producers of Hockey Night in Canada and college football, Major League Baseball, et cetera, the Olympics, everything like that. These guys that whose names I've seen on the credits and, and respected and everything else. Like, and they were all in the room. And for 
a good two hours, I was drilled. And I, at some point, I handed out these white papers of what I was, of all these ideas that I had. And then a few weeks later, they called me and they, they said, we want to offer you a job. And I said, as what? And they said, as a producer, and you're going to start as a junior producer. We're going to work your way up. And I started, I was 22 years old. I graduated on Friday, went to work at CBC on Monday, and I was tested there. And I, had, I did have a very, very difficult time at the beginning because I wasn't liked because I hadn't paid my dues. It was a tough time, but I survived. What was it about what you presented or the tone with which you presented it that these guys in that room saw some 22-year-old brash kid as talent that they could not live without? I mean, this is not a small job. The pool of folks that wanted that job is long. It goes around the building. Why you? Um, I'd like to think that it goes back to the ideas that I put out there. It goes back to that. Like I was willing to put myself out there. I had done my homework. It's amazing now that over the years, when I've been in positions of, of hiring young people, it's, it always surprises me that people come into the room and they don't really know a lot about the organization that they're applying to. Everything that I do, I prepare for. I prepared for this podcast. I knew I was going to be talking to you. I had heard about you, but I read more about you because I think anytime you're presenting yourself or anytime you're interacting with people, you should have a really good understanding of who they are. And so I was very prepared, extremely prepared about everything and anything that had, had been on CBC Sports. I knew all the talent. I knew how they come. I mean, I was as deep in as you could possibly go from not being part of the organization. Mm. And then I was willing to put myself out there. The interesting thing, about that 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 paper that I hung out that I handed out was that years later when I became head of CBC Sports, which is still when I think back, it's kind of ridiculous how that happened six or seven years later. All those guys working in the room outside of Denny Harvey were now working for me, which is nuts. And I was 28 years old, and my first day as head of CBC Sports, I'm in the corner office, and I go, I want to go into the files. I want to go into the human resources files. I want to see what's in everybody's files, what the announcers make, all these questions you have when you work in a sports department. It's like, I want to know, I want to know everything about it, all the stuff that I wondered about. And I found my file. And John, in my file was that paper wow. that I handed out. Mm. And some of those ideas were terrible, terrible. But some of those ideas we actually did. And it was just kind of funny just to, to look back. But I, like I said, I was prepared. I wasn't afraid to put myself out there. It was clear that I had an understanding of the department. And for them, they had realized that a lot of young, it was so hard to get into CBC Sports that a lot of young people were not even trying to get in. Mm -hmm. And they were taking a chance. And for them, it was a one-year contract. And they said, let's take a gamble on this guy. And that first year, I was tested. I mean, I was really, really tested. They like they didn't hold back. I had never been in a control room at CBC. <laughs> and within the first month, I was producing one of those Olympic type profiles on the greatest high jumper at the time. And then six months after starting, I was the replay director on Hockey Night in Canada. Not a trainee. I was the replay director on Hockey Night in Canada, which was nuts. So with every test, it, it just confirmed what Denny saw in me or Dennis, depending on which part of the country you're from. The big turning point for me came in 84 when I produced the Los Angeles Olympics. And that was the first time I was in LA. And being someone who was fascinated with TV and Hollywood and other, all those other things, it was great to be in LA and actually living here because I lived during the Olympics. I was here for three months. You know, outside of the 100,000 people in the Coliseum who see it live, 
Yeah. Or if you're seeing gymnastics, the 11,000 in that theater, uh, it's you guys in this little box that put it together so that we see it at home. Yeah. And so you, you did that, what, three different times? Yes. Three different Olympics. Countless memories. But is there one moment in those three Olympics that you remember as, man, this is this is why we do the work we do? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely when Ben Johnson raced Carl Lewis in the Seoul Olympics in 1988. It was at that time called the race of the century. It was the 100 meters. Carl had won four Olympic golds in Los Angeles. And Ben was starting to break world records in the 100 meters and things like that. He was really challenging Carl. But Olympic gold means more than any world championship or any world record. And so there was a lot of buildup to that race. And I was at CBC at the time. And NBC had just won the rights to the Olympics from ABC. So they were putting a ton of money into it. And we had a crew of 135 people. NBC had a crew of 1,500. We had a floor in the International Broadcast Center. NBC had a building. And the thing about Canada is that Canada is 90% cabled, even at that time. So Canadians have a choice. They could watch CBC or they could watch NBC. And I was very determined that Canadians were going to be watching the Olympic Games on CBC and not NBC. I did something really stupid though. I was at a press conference about our Olympic coverage and I said something at the Olympics, um, at this press conference that I should have never said because um, somebody asked the question about how is CBC going to compete with NBC because NBC is putting in all this money and everything else like that. And I said, we're going we're gonna to beat them with editorial judgment. We're going to be there live when we're supposed to be there live. And we're going to have this great mix of programming and we're just we're going to capture the story, et cetera, et cetera, editorial judgment. But that wasn't the stupid thing. The stupid thing was when I said, I should have stopped there, but I said, CBC's David's going to beat NBC's Goliath. That was the stupid thing. Because the next day, one of the Canadian newspapers, that was the headline, CBC's David versus NBC's Goliath. When I showed up in the control room in Seoul on the monitor... <laughs> There was an NBC programming monitor because I asked for one because I wanted to know what they were doing. It said Goliath. And on our programming monitor, our output, it said David. And so coming into the this great 100-meter race, that was the pinnacle yeah. you know, event of the, of the Olympics. Of course, we had made side bets with our American friends at NBC about betting. We, we were betting on Ben. They were betting on Carl and everything else. And so that night I was very determined to beat NBC. What I had done is earlier in the evening, I had burned a lot of commercials because I wanted to be at the stadium when Ben and Carl walked out. And then I had this whole pregame show before the race, 45 minutes before the race. We had every minute what, you know, what we were going to do, which package we were going to run and everything else like that. And sure enough, Ben and Carl walk out, 70,000 people go crazy. We tell the stories, NBC's in commercials. And I go, okay, we're off to a good start. The race goes, it's incredible. Ben wins, breaks a world record, wins the gold medal. And I'm on the phone with the prime minister of Canada. That's a whole other story. And the control room's pandemonium and it's all good and everything's great. And that, that night was the highest rated night in Canadian television history. Wow. And it held for almost 40 years. Um, and, um, Oh, no, not all, not 40 years. Wait a second. I got to correct myself. The night that he lost it, the night that he lost the medal, <laughs> which happened three days later, was the highest rated night in Canadian television history. More people saw the medal being taken away 
than being one. I remember during the race and the three days later that followed losing the Olympic medal, I said, I, for me, that was the biggest moment. You leave Seoul and you eventually leave that network. You begin yes. working with your buddy, Dick Clark. Yeah. I mean, so some of the younger folks who are listening to our conversation, they may not know him. Yeah. In a sentence, who was Dick Clark? He was a legend an icon. He hosted a show, American Bandstand, for a long time, which was what, what MTV was to, I don't even know what MTV is to this generation, but MTV was yeah. to my generation and generations that follow, maybe my kids' generation. Dick Clark was everything. He was the definitive, likable television host. He hosted a number of game shows, The Pyramid and things like that, but he was a maverick. He had a fantastic on-air personality in radio, in television. Dick Clark, New Year's Rock and Eve, which is still called Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve, uh, which Ryan Seacrest has was uh, everybody's, I mean, everybody and, and still people to this day, New Year's Rock and Eve is the show that if you're home, that's the show that you watch. And it all started with Dick Clark. But he was a great entrepreneur and a great businessman. And he he had this great production company. He created the American Music Awards and the Academy of Country Music Awards. And he produced the Golden Globes and a myriad of other stuff. And he was a genius. And on Bandstand, of course, he launched the careers of countless. Yeah. Madonna's first appearance on television was on Bandstand and so many others. And he was a legend and very good to me. Very good to me. Got me my green card. Well, he got you the green card. He got you the opportunity to work alongside of him. You guys yeah. built some mighty things together. Yeah. He also taught you a lesson that you would apply for the rest of your life, which is respect the audience. Yeah. Tell me what that means. Respect the audience. There are a lot of people who work in the entertainment business who think coastal. They think of LA and they think of New York and they don't think of the big market out there. And Dick was always about producing for the masses. We used to talk, he says, we just want to be popular. That's all we want to do is be popular. It's also the way he was. He was just a very honest person. So it's like really understand who your viewers are and respect them, you know, give them quality content that they can enjoy. And, and don't talk down to them. But really, it was all about understanding your audience. He would always go, who are we after here? What's, what's the sweet spot? And there was a lot of conversations about that. You left for Fox. I did. And Fox, when you left for it, was not Fox, as we hear that term today. Yeah. It was not this massive, massive network. It was fledgling. And who knows, maybe even failing after some of the investments they'd made a year earlier. Talk about what you were hoping to accomplish with Fox. I was surprised that I ended up back in sports because I moved to LA never, ever thinking I'd work in sports again. As you say, Fox barely existed as a network at that time. This was the early 90s and stuff like that. But in 1994, they got the rights to football. And, and it was an LA-based sports organization, very small. I was approached about going back to sports. And my first reaction was I wasn't interested because I had made this transition into entertainment programming, a variety of programming. And the headhunter said to me, he said, schmuck, go take the meeting. He said, you don't know what could happen. And I went to the meeting and I met with David Hill, who was the chairman or president of Fox Sports at the time. He went on to become chairman. And I got so excited by what the plan was and that their, their idea for expansion and the launch of all these regional sports networks. And at the time, they just had football. But David had this, and Rupert, a genius, Rupert's a genius, and this strategy of what they were going to do. And I was so impressed with it. And I just said to him, I said, well, what would I do? And they said, well, we're looking for someone to be head of programming, production, and news. And I said, oh, that, that's great. He said, no, no, we're not offering you the job. We're, we're interviewing you. I said, oh, okay, just got ahead of myself there. And I said, well, if you do offer me this job, I 
I love production. I love producing. I love being in the trenches. I'm still in Gordon Ramsay's ear for 22 seasons of Hell's Kitchen. It's the only place I want to be is in the control room. And one of the things I learned when I became head of CBC Sports was how much I didn't like being an executive. And, and I really still needed that connection. So I said to David, if someday you do offer me this job, I, I, can I produce something and, and do my other responsibilities as an executive? And he goes, yeah, it's, he said, it's your network. If you can figure it out, go ahead. And he says, I understand it. And David was a producer too. So he got that. Eventually they did offer me the job and I went there. We started and it was such a small group of us there. And it was amazing. We launched 22 sports networks and I did get to play and be the executive producer of college football and baseball and things like that. But as time went on, we did get so big that it was very difficult to get into the control room because I had other responsibilities with running the company. So Before you run the company, I'm going to ask you, you, you produced so many shows north of the border, around the world, and of course, in the United States. Mm. Is there a moment that you were in the truck producing and you're like, dude, I... I just can't believe I get to help produce an event like this, this special. Oh my God. I can't, you know what? There's so many, they all blend together and I can't think of anything, but I, listen, every time. And by the way, it still happens today. I'm still a big sports fan. And even though my company is, does a lot of entertainment programming, every year we work with the NFL and we do the Pro Bowl games. And I have so much fun because I get on the field working with the all-stars from the NFL and stuff like that. I get a kick out of everything. Every time I'm on set right. on American Ninja Warrior in our 15th season, I get excited. So I, I, the enthusiasm is still there for me. Uh, but yeah, you know, St. Louis, when McGuire and Sosa were going through the home run battle that year, and we had rights to all the games, all because we had all the regional sports networks, and we were in competition with ESPN. And, and ESPN had these, you know where I'm going with this, John. <laughs> ESPN had these cut-in rights into our games, and which meant that they could cut into our local Fox Sports telecasts at any time. If it was Sosa McGuire, something of significance, something of historical significance. Yes. So me loving to jab ESPN in any way that I could, because they were our competition, would monitor when ESPN, but I, I knew they were going to cut in every time when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were hitting home runs and they were 58, 59, getting close to 60. I knew they were going to join in. So we had this thing that every time they cut into our broadcast, number one, we put up the Fox Sports logo. And then we would do a promo coming up on Fox Sports, uh, the sports leader or something like that. And it would be covered on ESPN, which I, I just took a lot of pleasure in. But going back to the question, I, I, I don't, you know, John, I really don't know because there's so many of them. They all, like I said, they all blend together. And I'm just going to take your answer, McGuire, 60 second, because I wasn't watching it on television. Uh, but it was an unforgettable moment. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, you have not only an unforgettable moment capture there, you have what many would consider the, the best job you can possibly land. Here you are at Fox producing World Series and that moment of, of McGuire and World Series and everything else that you're part of. And then you leave it to start your own thing. Mm -hmm. It's a gutsy call. And the pragmatics and the practicals in the room might even say maybe not the best call. It right. ended up being the right call. Why'd you make it? When I was in sports, I missed entertainment. When I was in entertainment, I missed sports. And I realized I just loved everything. It goes back to the how this podcast started. I'm a TV-holic. I love everything about TV. And my company works in the nonfiction space. So whatever that space is, which I think is huge, whether it's sports, whether it's game, whether it's talk, variety, music, I love it all. And as I was getting towards what would be the end of my time at Fox Sports, I realized that I, I, I missed the creative 
being in the trenches producing. And I really wanted to get back to that. And I wanted to get back to other things besides sports, even though I always knew that sports would somehow be in my life. And I said, now's the time. Now's the time to start my own company, which was the biggest reach in my life. I had two young daughters, had the mortgage, the whole thing. And I had a really good contract at Fox Sports. And when I told my dad what I was doing, he loved telling his friends that he had his, his son yeah. was a big shot at Fox Sports. So he was like, why are you doing this? And I go, because I just feel like I need to do it. And I was just hoping, hoping that I could make a living. Like I was like, if I can make half yeah. of what I was making at Fox Sports, it'll be fine. So it was a shock when I went to them and said I was leaving because I had a long-term deal there. But it turned out to be a really good move. So yeah, but, well, you're, you're, thankfully, <laughs> you're almost making half finally what you were making when you left Fox. So congratulations on that. You started some shows. <laughs> I'm going to read this list because there's not a single listener who hasn't followed some of these shows or all of them for the true TV holics, Hell's Kitchen, America Ninja Warrior, Kitchen Nightmares, Paradise Hotel, Trading Spaces, The Swan, I Survived a Japanese Game Show, The Floor is Lava, on and on and on and on, hundreds more shows. And as you distill all those shows, you look for like a commonality in all in all of them. What is it? Because they seem at first glance so random. Yes. But if you go back and look a little bit closer, there is commonality. What is it? Well, I, I like television that makes you, or I should say content that makes you feel something. It has to impact you in some kind of way. It has to hit you emotionally. I'm a very emotional, sensitive person, kind of a big mushball. So I like television that makes you feel something. And American Ninja Warrior is an example of that. There's no logical reason why an obstacle course show should be in primetime in NBC. It makes absolutely no sense. But Ninja is more than that. It's a movement. It's, it's a community. And so much of our, our show is about getting vested in who these people are. And in Ninja, we celebrate the attempt. We most yeah. usually, and this is our 15th season, we don't have a winner. We don't. I mean, it's very un-American not to have a winner in your competition show. It's the only it's the only show or the only sporting event that I could think of where, where the athletes do root for each other. It's the only sport that I know of where the men and women compete on the same course, no handicaps for the women. And anyhow, like I said, so much we've told so many great stories, and some of the, the greatest moments in Ninja are not about completing the course. It's about what that person is able to achieve mm -hmm. um, and what they've overcome in their personal life. And it sounds kind of corny, but we kind of live by that. We, we say the, the obstacle course is kind of a metaphor for life. And we like we connect people's stories with what they're doing on the course. And I think that's why it has become this broad-based show. I mean, we're in our 15th season. It's on Monday nights on NBC. There's a promo. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Now there's ninja gyms all over the country and kids, they, they're like, I hear about, oh, I don't play soccer anymore. I do ninja. It's now a sport. It's being considered for the 2028 Olympics as part, as a demonstration sport. I mean, it's been nominated for an Emmy Award seven times. I mean, it's nuts. But, you know, I, I, I say that, you know, we make our good fortune. We make our good fortune. And Ninja is an example of that. Ninja was a little show on a cable network called G4. And I was happy to produce this show for G4. You know, we kind of hit home runs and everything that we do. I was happy to have this little single and we were doing the show and the show was doing very well on G4. But then, as luck would have it, Comcast, who owns E, G4, Oxygen, Bravo, buys NBC Universal, And purely as an act of synergy, we, we, me and the head of G4 Network, we go to NBC and say, just put our finale on the air. Yeah. Never thinking that we'd actually become a series. It was just supposed to be 
an active synergy. You put the show on the big network, which throws a spotlight on the little network and this little show. Mm. But the show goes off and, you know, wins its time period and eventually NBC takes it. And now we're in our 15th season. But you got to be lucky because Comcast doesn't buy NBC. We may not be on the air because G4 doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So. So I overprepare when I get ready for a podcast. I, I read your book. I watched every single video that you've ever been part of, including <laughs> an interview you did like 16 years ago about what Ninja was. So I'm, oh, I'm wow. watching you before Nintendo was invented. And then I think out of all the answers you've given, someone said, what's the one thing you can't live without? And you thought about it for a moment. And then you said, my wife, my wife, which was beautiful. And I don't think the guy took you at your word, but I did when I heard you. So here's my question to you, not so much about your wife as much as this, as you reach, as you keep climbing, as you keep hopping on the next flight and in and out of the next booth and out of these meetings, how do you balance that with reaching to be the most outstanding husband and then father to your two girls as you possibly can? Family is everything to me. Um, and I didn't say this, Scott Galloway said this recently, and it stuck with me. The most important decision of your life is choosing your spouse. It is. We're celebrating our 35th anniversary this year, and we balance each other. We completely balance each other. She is patient, which I'm not. She's calm, which I'm not. She rolls with it really well. Not that I don't, but she's just so easygoing, and she allowed me to to do, you know, when you're in sports, you're going to travel. When you're trying to build your career, you're going to work hard. You're going to sacrifice. And I grew up with a dad who worked very late. And there were times when I wanted him to be there and he wasn't there, but I knew he was trying to provide for his family. But family is everything to me. It's by far the most important thing. It's what I grew up with. It's what I always come back to. And it's interesting that I, I will share something with you that it's not a big share, but most of my friends aren't in the business. Most of my friends are whatever, accountants, yeah. doctors, real estate agents. And it's kind of intentional because when I'm with people in the business, it feels like I'm working, especially in LA. It just happens. You end up talking about work and things like that. And not that I don't have good friends in the business, but most of my closer friends are not. And my closest friends are the guys I grew up with in Montreal. They're still, they're, I was just away with in New York, I was in the Hamptons speaking, and one of my friends flew down from Montreal. He was the best man at my wedding. We grew up together. They're still my closest friends. There's nothing like old friends, right? But family is everything. And it's funny. I, I, I find myself saying a lot of the things that my dad said to, said to me, I say to my daughters. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that happens to you, John, right? It's like, you, it's like wait a second. Beginning to. Yeah, beginning to. Okay. So, yeah. You have four kids? We have four children. We have four kids. I, I wish I had more. I wish I had more. I don't believe in regrets, but I, I, I've enjoyed the role of dad more than anything. So I wrote down 11 quotes that I was going to have you unpack for me. Oh, and wow. instead, uh, yeah, we're out of time though. So instead <laughs> I'll have you unpack one that you already used earlier, but it's so important. So to all of my educators who are listening and parents and aunts and uncles and television producers, this one's for you and Arthur will unpack it afterwards. If you make a kid feel special, hmm. he might actually believe it. Hmm. Tell me what that means and why it matters. Uh, kids are absorbing from very early on. <laughs> and it's not only what they pick up from you, but it's also what they're picking up from watching you. Me being close to my parents, my kids are very close to me. Mm. I got both my daughters live within a few miles of my house. 
they both work in the entertainment business. One of them is staff at our company, Leah. She's works in development. And Rachel, she's a freelancer. She's on a show right now with us. She's a supervising producer. But I think it's so important that we give children the confidence to go after their dreams and to reach and to be there supportive. But I don't believe in wrapping them in cotton wool either. I believe that disappointment is good uh, because we learn from our disappointment. We learn from our challenges because you want them to be strong and you want them to be independent. And yes, we all have a tendency to want to protect our kids from everything. And that's okay, but not to the point where they're shielded from too much because they're going to go to college. They're going to deal with disappointment. They're going to get out there in the real world. And it's important that they know what that feeling is like and to bounce back. I believe in fate. John, mm. you've been very good with me, letting me ramble and, and talk about some of my successes. But I've had things that have been disappointing in my life. And I believe everything's meant to be. I believe in fate. And so sometimes when something bad happens to you, you may not know in the minute why it happened to you. And sometimes it takes years to find out why it happened to you. I know, John, you can relate to this considering all the stuff that you've been through, especially in your early life and to where you are today, that sometimes it takes, like I said, years to find out why something happened to you. And we're all part, all our failures, all our successes are all part of who we are. Arthur Smith, my friend who reaches and teaches the rest of us how to reach with him. I have seven questions that we share <laughs> with every one of our guests as yes. we wrap up. They're, they're quick fire, man. Okay. So one word answers, here we go. What's been the most influential book you've ever read? Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Montreal that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Patience. Hmm. If your home caught fire and your daughters and your wife are out safely, any animals are out safely, you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item. What's the one thing you would grab? That's right beside me. I have a bag of all our home videos. That's it pictures and home videos. I have a bag. And you know why it's right beside me? Because in LA, we're always worried about yeah. fires and things like that. So I have this bag. I'm looking at it right now. And it's got all our home videos and like key memories from when the kids were young and everything. Mm. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you choose to be next to? Oh, oh man. It, it'd be my parents. It'd be my parents for sure. No question. I'd... I, 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 I was hesitating because I was trying not to cry because when I think about them, I get very emotional. Anything unsaid? No, I don't know. I don't, I can't think of anything. I don't know. I could keep going forever. You're, you're easy to talk to and I'm, and I can't shut up. Remember <laughs> when I said I was shy when I was nine years old? I wish you'd never scored that goal that day. This I know. It would scored, have been so much more. I, it would have been so much easier. We would have, you would have been done already. You could have had a snack and relaxed. And I, I will tell you something, though. Writing this book has been such a pleasure for me and getting to talk to people like you. And you're special in your own right, for sure. I hope this book, yes, there's stories about a lot of famous people, and we've talked about some of them. Dwayne Johnson's in there, Gordon Ramsay, Donald Trump, Dick Clark, Marlon Brando makes a cameo in there. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting people, but I'd like to say it's a memoir with a purpose, and mm -hmm. I really hope it in inspires people as much as it entertains them. Something happened to me before the book came out, and it was such a blessing, and it still shakes me when I think about it. Everybody who's listening today has a choice. They could have a choice whether they want to buy the book or they don't want to buy the book. It's, it's their choice. But there's one person who doesn't have a choice. That's the audio engineer who listens to the audio book. That poor guy 
has to listen for four days, me reading the book. He's got no choice. So I go in to do my audio session and the guy, he's a technician and he's not very warm. And all he says to me basically for four days is you're just getting too close to the mic. Stop popping your peas. <laughs> and like one day I said, you want to go grab a bite? We have a lunch break. He goes, no, I'm okay. So he couldn't have been like colder to me. And I was like, okay, the guy's doing his job. And anyhow, at the end of the four days, I go up to him and I say, thank you so much for being with me. And I hope I didn't bore you or whatever. I Something along the lines I said, and he goes, you've changed my life. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, I realize I'm not reaching enough in my life. And he says, I've been listening to you very intently for four days. And he says, I'm going to change. I'm going to do things differently. And I, he said, it's been so impactful. And I was like, and I said, can I give you a hug? I said, maybe that was a little too forward, but I was like, I give you a hug. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He gave me a hug. And then I sat in the car and I was like, just thinking, I said, oh my God. I said, what a, what a blessing. What a blessing. And, and even before the book came out, I felt like I, I won in, life. in a way. So it was, it was great. Yeah. Well, I don't think, that, I don't think that book that easy. I, I, I still have three to go. So you, you, uh, you've changed my life. I'm going to, I'm going to finish the three questions of the live inspired seven. All right, let's go. Let's go. Best advice you've ever received. Good to be lucky. Lucky to be good. What would you tell your, yourself at age 20? If you could go back in time, just oh. a couple of years, Arthur, and whisper some encouragement your way, what would you say? Enjoy the now. Hmm. Enjoy the now. Uh, and when I look back on my life, when you're, when you're someone who's reaching, there is a tendency to just not enjoy what you're doing because you're so obsessed with looking at what, what you're doing next. And I've worked on it. I still have to work on it. I have to remind myself. I'm, I, I'd like to be better at it, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. I, didn't, I don't think I enjoyed my run at CBC Sports as much as I should have. I don't think I enjoyed some of the moments at Fox Sports as much as I should have. Right. I'm getting better at it. It's a challenge. But that, that to me is enjoy the now. I'm enjoying the now right now, though. I, I am too, that. man. This has been a blast. <laughs> I wish we had more to go, but here we go. Final question. Arthur yeah. Smith, my friend, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I believe that it's important to reach in your life, but it's more important to reach back and help others. Arthur Smith, son of Goldie and Saul. <laughs> I appreciate you not only reaching back to pull them forward with you, but reaching all the way back to pull the rest of us with you forward as well. It was a wild ride reading your book. It's been a joy getting to know you during this interview. And I'm looking forward to doing life with you going forward. Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. My friends, that is Arthur Smith. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I just absolutely loved how Arthur celebrated the love, the support, the wisdom that he received from his parents. One of the quotes that stood out, there were many, but one that really jumped out at me was from his dad. And he said that there's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And there's never the right time to do the wrong thing. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, let me put in front of you two other considerations to check out. The first is my buddy Bob Costas. Costas earned 29 Emmy Awards. That's more than any other sports broadcaster. He's also one of the most humble, remarkable guys that I've ever met in media. 
If you want to learn more about Bob's story, check it out at episode 392. But I'm going to take you way back in time for our other broadcasting leader. His name is Joe Buck. Joe Buck was my third guest on the Live Inspired podcast. And one of the reasons why I bring him up today, besides the fact that the story is worthy of learning from, is that we recently cast an individual to play his father in a forthcoming movie called On Fire. The gentleman who will be playing Jack Buck is none other than the great William H. Macy. He's one of an incredible all-star cast that have said yes to participating in the movie On Fire. My friends, thank you for tuning in this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.